We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. About a decade ago now, my mom read a World War II era historical thriller novel called Mr. Churchill's Secretary and became an instant fan of both the main character, Maggie Hope, an intrepid young spy and codebreaker who rose up to meet the challenges of that time period, as well as author Susan Elia McNeil. In the years that followed, she would eagerly anticipate each new installment. And I remember going to track down a few on pub day at Barnes and Noble. Well, I am so pleased to welcome this very talented author to the podcast today, a New York Times bestselling novelist of not only the Maggie Hope series, but also her recently published standalone book, Mother Daughter Trader Spy. In the last decade, McNeil has won the Barry Award and also has been nominated for the Edgar, McCavity, Agatha, Left Coast Crime, Dillis, and ITW Thriller Awards. Susan, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? And how was your recent book tour? Oh, I'm great, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, Honored. Book tour was really fun. I got to speak in New York City, my hometown, and I got to go to Houston, Texas, and uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So that Yay. was really fun. <laughs> yeah, 15 minutes from where I am at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Love the Poisoned Pen. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So how was the turnout? Did you have any like funny questions or were people pretty cool? Oh, uh, you know, the turnout was great. I've got to say, I had a celebrity friend come to the New York one. Um, I'm, well, I think your older viewer or listeners will know Lynn Sher from ABC's 2020 Investigative. Oh, wow. Journalist. Yeah. Okay. She's a Maggie Hope fan and That's she loves so Mother cool. Daughter Trader Spy. And she asked me a question and I swear to goodness, it was like, those penetrating eyes, like, I don't know, you know, picture it in your mind and like the exact tones that came out of my TV when I was little, it was crazy. (laughs) It was out of of body experience, but also really good. It was a hard question, but it was a good question as you would expect. It was a 2020 Uh, question. It was a 2020 question. And for those few seconds I was on 2020. 
I know. And on it for like a good reason, not today we're going into, yes. (laughs) God forbid. Yes. (laughs) Authors in New York city, an expose. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool. Well, I haven't quite finished the new novel yet, but I'm really enjoying how much I'm learning about real spy history in world war II. I love all of the rich detail, and it's just such a cool idea. For those listening who might be unaware, why don't you fill us in on what Mother Daughter Trader Spy is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, Well, Mother Daughter Trader Spy is my first standalone novel. Um, So it's not Maggie Hope. So it was a huge thing for me. Yeah. Uh, It's about two women, a mother and a daughter, who go undercover in these American Nazi organizations in the early 40s before Pearl Harbor. And a lot of what they found out by posing as, you know, secretaries and, uh, you know, women hangers on. Um, they were they found out really pertinent information about several sabotage events and that were planned and also evidence that was brought against the American Nazis in the sedition trial of 1944. So they did amazing work um, in incredibly dangerous circumstances. They were um, always you know afraid of being found out and honestly, a lot of the spies from that organization died in what we can only call mysterious circumstances. No one ever was able to prove anything, but there were accidents and what people were poisonings. Um, So they were definitely, definitely in danger. And we were just talking right before this, and I was joking about how the elevator pitch that I was asked at one of the readings is... um, Black Klansman meets Little Women because it has really <laughs> strong female characters. Yes, but it also has somebody you know the going undercover aspect yeah. of it in precarious situations and yeah. dangerous situations. I know. I loved how it opened too. You open with this really intense, scary scene of a spy um, getting found out, and it's just it's terrifying. Yes. It's- True. That is a true story. And I was able to read the actual coroner's report. Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah. Oh, that'd be eerie. Well, I'd love to know your background with history. Were you a history major? I was not, although I always loved history and I took a lot of history at school, but I was an English major. Um, those were always my two loves. Yes. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the two plus a little theater thrown in, but, um, so cool. I, and I always loved nonfiction books. I've always loved, um, you know, World War II. But um, the, the crazy thing is I was sort of, um, I was thinking about doing creative writing and I was taking some classes and I was working as an editor at Dance Magazine. That's like a magazine oh, cool. in New York for ballet and modern and jazz. And um, we all lost our jobs when the magazine moved to San Francisco. I know oh, it was, no. at the time I thought it was so horrible, but I actually, at that point, decided to go freelance. I had just gotten married, so I had health insurance through my husband. Good. And um, yeah, well, because, right, you can't do it. It's hard to do anything without that health insurance. Yeah, freelance is a scary proposition. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, my husband was going to work in London for six weeks. And because I wasn't working, I actually could join him. Now, I have to tell you what he did. Um he works often for Sesame Street and the Jim Henson Company. He's a professional puppeteer, a Muppeteer. And I he was, love that. Wow. He was doing Bear in the Big Blue House. 
for oh Disney goodness. Channel UK. He played Bear. So we were we were there thanks to Bear in the Big Blue House. But I was doing things like going to the Churchill War Room. So um, that's kind of how that all came about. And the funny thing is, there's also a Muppet um, reference for the standalone because Noel did. Uh, Noel, my husband, did. Um, the Muppets take the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles a number of years ago. And when he was at LAX, he picked up the book Hitler in Los Angeles for me at the wow. bookstore at yeah. the airport. And, you know, some women get chocolate and some women get jewels, <laughs> got a Hitler book. But actually, that was a very good gift for me because it basically gave me the ideas for um, The Hollywood Spy, which is my last Maggie Hope novel. And then also this new one, Mother, Daughter, Traitor, Spy, because those two, the mother and the daughter, were mentioned in Hitler in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's amazing. So he was kind of your muse. He was. Absolutely. That is so cool. Well, what is your research and your writing process like? Well, you know, usually I'm able to find a lot of things in books and I do my research in books. But for this... um, for this novel, I, of course, read Hitler in Los Angeles by Stephen um, J. Ross. But I actually went to um, the CU Northridge. And because it was during COVID, a librarian who really should be sainted made <laughs> all of these photocopies for me from boxes and boxes and boxes of original documents that you know I couldn't go see because of COVID. But um, he photographed them and sent all the photographs to me by email. So I was able to look at the original on my computer, which is insane to me. And of course he gets a huge thank you along with the library in the acknowledgements. Yeah. I love librarians. Uh, My mom worked in libraries when I was a kid. And then I worked in a middle school library for a short period of time. And I just I love librarians. That's so cool. Absolutely. And there would be no book without librarians. This this very wonderful man. Um, and also the librarians at USC. I use their um, archives for research too. Although I was able to go in person at that point. So that was fun. Nice. I was going to ask you, yeah, because it's very specific about the topography of LA and where everything is, if you went and spent some time there. Well, I I was lucky in that The Hollywood Spy took place in Los Angeles, which is a place I'm familiar with. I have friends and relatives out there and a lot of work out there. So I I was familiar with it. I did go to research The Hollywood Spy, which was really fun. And then after COVID, I was able to go back and before I turned the book in, really go to the places that I was talking about, even if they didn't exist anymore, even just to go to that, you know, street corner to find out, I don't know how it felt and how yeah. far it was from everything else. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Kind of soak it up at least. Yeah. Yeah. Had you always, I know you mentioned that you'd kind of wanted to do creative writing in college, but had you always kind of written stories or were you interested in that as a kid? I was so interested in, I was just so interested in reading and I loved the library. It was a happy place. Um, I I just loved books so much. I don't know that I ever expressed to myself that I wanted to be a writer until I was maybe in my twenties, I was starting to do. So I was an editor in Mm -hmm. book publishing and then I moved over to magazine publishing and I started to write magazine pieces too. And it just made me feel more confident about my writing. Um, I started taking some classes 
But it wasn't until I went to London and went to the cabinet war rooms that I really was sort of struck by this um, idea to start this, you know, the Maggie Hope series. That's so good. And you mentioned the Hollywood Spies, the last one. Is it the final like bookend? No, 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 no. Or just the most recent? It's just the most recent. Uh, Maggie Hope will continue. You can tell your mom that. Okay, good. She'll want to know. And I'm working on the new one now. And the new one has Maggie going to uh, Paris, but also Madrid, because she is doing some work um, with Coco Chanel, the clothes designer. Coco Chanel, for reals, was uh, a Nazi agent. And in 1943 to 44, she was trying to negotiate a separate peace for Germany with the fascist aristocrats of England. And so this book is about that, um, plus a little bit of Kim Philby, because he was actually before, you know, he, the Cambridge spy, five, yes. spy. Um, while he was a spy for Russia, um, he was in charge, he was the Brit in charge of spies in Spain for World War II. So when Maggie wow. goes to Spain, it's under Kim Philby, who has his own agenda about who should, you know how this all should go. So. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. It's very rich in history again. So next for you creatively, are these two books, one book? Well, that's the book I'm working on right now. And there will be more Maggie Hope books. I'm I'm going to write at least to the end of the war to uh, to VE day. Um, Maybe past that. I'm not sure. Um, And I'd love to write another standalone. It was hard, but it was really fun. And I kind of, I have the groove now. So I think maybe on and off with Maggie, I don't know, but. Yeah. I was wondering that, was it a little bit scary? Like, did you tell your editor, I'm going to write a standalone and she's like, what are you doing? Or he. (laughs) Pretty much. um, It was really scary. Um, You know, I had to go in and pitch it um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, my, my people. Um, but they seem to really like the idea, but then, you know, then you have to do it yeah. and you have to sit down and write it. And That's I was always the so, hardest. Yes. So hard. And yeah. I was so out of my element. Yeah, I know. It's like you, you get really excited about an idea. Like I want to write this article and then they're like, write it. Yes. Wait, I have to do that now. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, well, when we were thinking of theme ideas to cover for today's episode, spy movies seemed like a perfect fit and a natural one because you're a woman well-versed in both the historical and fictional accounts of spies and those who find themselves going undercover for one reason or another. Obviously, there are an infinite number of films we could have discussed, but I would have kept you here for like a year. And who knows, maybe we'll have to do a part two down the road. But I like the diverse trio that you selected of Alfred Hitchcock's classic North by Northwest, Brian Singer's Valkyrie, and Spike Lee's Black Klansman. We'll go deeper into the movies one by one in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd love to know what you think it is about spies that makes for such riveting films and storytelling in general. You know, spies are in their own story. They're, they're sort of in this other milieu, but they have their own agenda. And I think, you know, having that sort of secrecy and that secret that they're keeping makes the whole thing so tense and I love that. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Plus, it gives me uh, a chance to write about women. World War II was really, um, yeah. obviously, there were there were female spies before that. But the British, with the Special Operations Executive, really sent women abroad. 
and they did amazing things and we owe so much to them. And I was, I'm just so inspired by their stories really. Yeah. I learned so much um, just reading uh, Mother, Daughter, Trader, Spy about women here in America. But I do love that you are kind of shining a light on women's roles in in this war because I think we're we're overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, diving into the movies chronologically, we're starting with North by Northwest working from a script by Ernest Lehman, who purportedly wanted to write the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. This 1959 classic stars Cary Grant as an advertising executive named Roger O. Thornhill, who is mistaken for another man and finds his life threatened and himself embroiled in a complex spy plot that works in James Mason and Eva Marie Saint as well, an iconic entry in Alfred Hitchcock's incredible filmography. The movie features two still thrilling action set pieces, including the crop duster that comes out of nowhere and attempts to plow Cary Grant down, and also the chase sequence that plays out on Mount Rushmore that rumor is actually inspired the whole movie. It's mm-hmm. just so fun. So let's get into it, Susan. What are your thoughts on North by Northwest? Well, first of all, I love the title so much. You know, yeah, it's nonsensical. Yes. Nothing, right? But yeah. then I was reading that it could be a quote from Hamlet. Although I saw that too. Yeah. Hitchcock never verified that. So I don't know what he was thinking, but you know, it's so cool. Like North by Northwest is like, it doesn't exist. So it's no. kind of, a, I don't, yeah. And then of course there's the Hitchcock cameo in the very mm-hmm. beginning. We get to see him getting on a bus in New York city. And I really enjoyed seeing New York. Um, it, it, it was very Mad Men, you know? So um, you, you yeah. have an executive and, you know, very mid-century modern and everything is really in this vaguely ominous, but also like really sort of chic. And there's the Oak bar and the Plaza and all these like really cool places. So yeah. I loved I, that. I know. And he's wearing what, what like GQ and a lot of fashion designers. I remember seeing this panel on TCM saying it's the best suit. In, Isn't it yeah. the best suit? It's oh sort of like gosh. a new gray tweed. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. It's just, it. it's so beautiful. And it, you know, Cary Grant is just so elegant and he, yes. you know, he moves so beautifully and it's just perfect. I'm so glad they let him wear it for the whole, the whole movie. I know it is really an, an important suit. It's almost like to talk about another Hitchcock movie, Kim Novak in that gray suit in Vertigo, but that was supposed to look very stiff. She wears it frequently, but in this, you know, it's soft and it kind of moves with him because he has those cat-like reflexes right. and he just kind of is always on the prowl. And I thought this was um, such a good uh, suit for him to wear. I know other filmmakers have been inspired by it. Like John Woo used it in Paycheck and, I've read that also Michael Mann used it for Tom Cruise and Collateral and a few others. There, there have been some a lot of homage to this film. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, this summer in August, I went to L.A. and uh, my buddy Rob Belushi and I went over to the Academy Museum and we saw the 
huge oil painting. I didn't know how huge it was. It was like a couple oh, wow. stories um, tall of Mount Rushmore because they didn't want any part of this whole chase sequence, you know? And so that was a lot of fun. We actually were a little too enthusiastic when we were posing for photos. So we got yelled at because oh, um, no. Rob wanted to do the scale of this painting. So he like laid down on the ground just to get a oh. photo. And that was a no-no. And uh, then he's directing me. He's like, you know, take off your mask for two seconds just to get the photo. Nope. So I thought we were going to get thrown in museum jail just for um, how excited we were about North by Northwest. But it was incredible to see. And I'm glad that, you know, we didn't get arrested or anything. So it was I'm fun. very glad to. Yes. Yeah, I know. Wow. I wish I could have seen that. Those those sequences are some of the best in the business. And I know this is a, you know, it's very much a tongue in cheek movie about thrillers and, you know, mistaken identity and the MacGuffin. But wow, those are so tense. It's incredible. Yeah. She's climbing around in high heels. That bothers me as a woman. Like all the oh, time yeah. when I see women running in high heels, I'm like, oh my God, her ankles or they're going to break. Oh. And she's, you know, climbing around um, the chemistry between Eva Marie Saint and Carrie yes, Grant. Yes, in this banter, just... even hanging from the side of Mount Rushmore, they are yes. Yeah, he's proposing to her um, mm. as as they're in jeopardy. I mean, it's your typical classic, um, you know, Cary Grant trying to seduce her while they're in danger. Yes. And of course, the train sequence is very iconic. Oh, the yeah. train sequence. Oh, yes. it was so naughty. Yeah. Um, but they do make sure I, I noticed this definitely when I rewatched it this week. Um, they definitely make sure that the audience knows that they're married before the whole train sequence takes place. And I thought that was the, an end, um, the end train at the very end. Yes. Yeah. The very end train <laughs> so um, that like they are Mr. And Mrs. Before we get to the very, very end. Yeah. Yeah. The other one is, like the other one is really hot. I mean, yeah, it is. Yep. I, I'd love to have Carrie Grant in yeah. train suite. That'd I be pretty know. amazing. It, yeah, exactly. He has some lines that I guess even Marie Saint in an interview was talking about. She was redubbed um, mm -hmm. something about I never make love on an empty stomach uh, turned into I like I never talk about or discuss love or they like change the dialogue. Yeah. But enough of that dialogue manages to still stay in there. Like, you know, oh, Carrie Grant know. when, uh, you know, Every time I meet an attractive woman, I have to pretend I don't want to make love to her. And she's like, why pretend? And you're like, whoa, it's on. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, she's like the perfect Hitchcock blonde. Yeah. So beautiful, so elegant, so mm -hmm. cool and collected, which is perfect for a spy. But I really do think like by the end of the movie, we do see her warmth come through. We do. Yeah. We do feel like she really has fallen for Cary Grant's character even though, um, you know, she's always professional. She's yep. still always doing her job. But yeah. she, she portrays that beautifully, I think. You know, one thing I also noticed this time around, I actually watched it at the beginning of the summer because I knew I was going to go to the museum. And so I got to see it twice this year and I love it so much. Wow. But um, one thing I noticed this time around is Cary Grant is almost playing a, a typical woman's role, essentially, because in movies, Ooh. we're usually the ones that are disbelieved. He's like, no, right. this really happened to me or they were doing this or they got me drunk and they did. And he's like trying to make people believe this crazy stuff that is happening and you're like it really happened and so I was watching 
watching it this time going, he's kind of playing a role that you would expect maybe a, a female character to play. Yeah. That is really interesting. I like that. I hadn't thought of that, but that's, that's great. Yeah. And the agent was usually be the man. Yeah. I know. And James Mason, I mean, what a good villain. Yeah. That mm. voice. Yes. That voice, the, the gaze. It was incredible. Yes. Yeah. I remember an interview with Belinda Carlisle, I think is, was his daughter-in-law. And oh, okay. she was saying when um, the first time she met him, she was so nervous because she'd seen all these roles like Lolita and all these villainous roles. And so the first time the boyfriend brought her home, she's like, I'm meeting James Mason and how scary would it be? But you know, he was just such a warm and nice uh, person, yes, but, good. but yeah, I think he would be an intimidating figure just for the voice alone, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it is a really good one. The bus stop scene. I mean, oh. why is there a bus stop in the middle of nowhere? And like two people get out first, you don't know where the danger is coming from. I love that you hear it first. You hear that crop duster before you see it. It's so good. I found it was so ominous too that we never saw the pilot. There was never a shot of That's the a good pilot. Point. Yeah. And I was reading that Hitchcock was criticized for that. Um, and he right. said, "There's based. I'm paraphrasing, but there's no reason you need to know who the pilot is." And I think it's just so much scarier because it's, it's this yeah. anonymous threat from the sky. It's it's brilliant. Yeah, it just it kind of keeps coming. It's sort of like. Uh, that movie that Spielberg made, Duel, where the guy is driving home with the truck behind him. I was thinking about that with the trucks and they were so anonymous, you know, and it's scarier that way. It really is. Yeah, I know. When you can't see the evil, for sure. Yeah, it's a great film. Do you have any other thoughts you wanted to share on this viewing? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Even Marie Saint's outfits were so spectacular. Um, you mentioned running in heels, which she does very well, but my goodness, she, you know, she can really wear clothing and it is so yes. elegant. Yeah. They went to buy it at Bergdorf Goodman, I guess. I MGM. Yeah. MGM chose a wardrobe that they weren't digging. So they just went to the, <laughs> went to the department store and found some new stuff, which I like. Yeah. yeah. The only other thing I would add is that um, I, I'm not a smoker and I don't find it attractive, but when Cary Grant lights her cigarette, it's just yes. so charged and it's kind of like, Oh, I kind of understand this now. So I know. I, you know, yeah. I My friend, uh, Nikki Dolson, who I believe, you know, on Twitter, she's a, a crime writer. She started a thread during the pandemic, which is why is smoking sexy on film? Like I don't smoke. She's asthmatic, just like I am. Mm -hmm. And she started this thread of all the, you know, smoking scenes and movies being way too uh, beautiful and smoldering. This would be up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, our next film based on a true story chronicles the plot by German army officers to assassinate Adolf Hitler by using the National Emergency Plan dubbed Operation Valkyrie on July 20, 1944, starring Tom Cruise, Kenneth Branagh, Bill Nye, Terrence Stamp, Eddie Izzard, and Tom Wilkinson. 2008's Valkyrie was directed by Brian Singer and written by his brilliant Oscar-winning Usual Suspect screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie, along with Nathan Alexander. 
Well, I was relatively new to the plot line ahead of the film's release when I saw it back then. I know this is an era that you have a great deal of knowledge about, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. I find it fascinating that for most of us, especially for Americans, um, this idea of there being a pushback against Hitler and lots of actually assassination attempts against Hitler over the years. Um, I find it fascinating. I, I just think it must've taken such courage and um, you know, pretty much knowing that you would be executed for treason. Yeah. it, it just, um, it doesn't change the narrative, of course, but it's really nice to know. I think it's comforting that so many people did feel that way. And if those people were inspired to act, so many more people must have been thinking it and feeling that way. Yeah, so I really like that. Me too. Um, I am German on both sides. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a mutt, essentially, we're a million different things. But German, and I, it was always the... Um, ethnicity that I was just really, you know, apprehensive about because you grow up learning about World War II. I remember when I saw this, it just, it kind of made me proud to know that there were these people that had this courage and knew that this was wrong and they were going to try to act. I also love that you don't quite know, except that, you know, it seems like, I don't know if it's humanism or just national pride or what it really is for the Tom Cruise character that makes him decide. I think that historically they weren't fully sure of his motivation, but he just knew that this was wrong for Germany. And so he decided to do that. I mean, yeah, I love that too. From what I understand, and I've been researching this a bit for the new Maggie Hope novel. It's uh basically if, if anybody wanted to negotiate a separate peace with Britain, Hitler would have to be gone. So, you know, there were many plans in place to try to assassinate Hitler. This is the one that kind of got to fruition. Um, Tom, Tom Cruise, I have to admit is not my favorite actor. So I didn't come into this as like a Tom Cruise fan, but I thought he did a really good job with it. The real um, Stauffenberg apparently learned, first of all, he was in the German military. There were a lot of people in the army, the German army who were very much against the SS. And from the beginning, the military and the SS were always at odds with each other and had, you know, issues. Um, I read that one of the reasons is that he learned about the final solution and that is what made him decide like this needed to be done for the sake of Germany's honor, for the sake of trying to get a separate peace, for the sake of ending the war. So that's all part of that. So, I mean, you know, big, big stakes. Um, Although I think he, he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't like the quote unquote good German. I mean, of course, Tom Cruise is because he's Tom Cruise and he's our hero in the movie. But I think, you know, he was maybe a little bit converted by Nazi sentiment, but definitely not by that point in the war. That yeah. Was, we, we first meet him when he's in the Middle East. And I think that that was like 42 with Rommel. So, you yes. know, by that point, he was seeing like, this is all just a disaster. Mm hmm. Yeah, I kind of liked the way that they sort of made it like almost a thriller. Um, they, they, It could have been a little bit more dry. You can sort of 
uh, see where like a mini series version of this would be, you know, about the plot. And so I did think that making it, that was maybe Tom Cruise's input a little bit with Macquarie. Um, there's a joke that he sort of falls in love with a certain writer. And then that writer works with him a lot. Macquarie, of course, with uh, the Mission Impossibles, the new Top Gun, which people joked was another Mission Impossible. And this yeah. sort of feels like Mission Impossible World War II. A little yeah, very bit. much so. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. And I thought that that made it um, ratcheted up the tension a little bit. And I think, I mean, well, it made yeah. it more Hollywood and more palatable, probably for people who um, might have thought that the movie was going to be a little bit more dry. I love the cast, though. I mean, we have some of yes. the, the best actors. Um, Carice, uh, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, Carice Van Houten, who was in mm -hmm. Black Book which yeah. was um, extraordinary and she's great. But then you have all of the British heavies uh, in there. I, I wanted to ask your opinion on, do you think they should have used accents or not? I'm kind of mixed on that. Oh, um, you know, I, I think it was okay without the accents. I think that would have ultimately be distracting, distracting. because you know, people are yeah. them and some people just aren't. I wonder if maybe Cruz wasn't, which is why they decided not. Yeah, yeah. But, but I like how they do it. They have... Tom Cruise in, you know, as Stauffenberg reading a letter to his wife and then it's, it's in German mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it switches to English, but it's the same voice. And then we're sort of like, Oh, okay. We're just hearing yeah. it's, it's in German, but we're hearing it in English. So I thought that was a good technique to use. That's really smart. Yeah. I did admire that as well. Yeah. And going back to the tension, you know, I liked what they did to ratchet up the tension yeah. because you know that we know the attempt failed. Yeah. I mean, right? So we know the end of the movie. I mean, most people know, I think that, you know, people were executed for this crime. So mm -hmm. the attempted crime. So it, it is a way to make us really care and like really, really, you know, become involved and tense. And, and it becomes a little less of like, will they succeed? But like, how will they be brought down and how far will they get? So yeah. I thought it was interesting because with mother, daughter, trader, spy, I also like, we know how everything ends. Right. So that's so how true. Do I tension. And the tension is like, you never know what, if you're going to be caught and you never know how you could be brought down. So yeah. the constant danger and the ticking clock, those all really do great things for the movie. I think. Yeah. It kind of works almost like Columbo does instead of a whodunit. <laughs> yeah. It's a how catch him. Like, yeah. how is he going to uh, prove that this person who we know is the killer is the killer? And um, so it's like, you know, you find yourself holding your breath and like, get away with it, get away with it in this. And um, yeah. And so it's just it's yeah, it's a good technique. I think that's really smart. Yeah. With every near miss, you know, you're like more and more invested, yes. you know, because they've made it this far. They've made it this far. So I do love that about the movie. And I think, you know, a lot of writers could like take a page from that, like seeing how they ratcheted up the tension. Yeah. So had you, were you a fan of this back in 08 or is this something there that you kind of got more involved in after you started writing the Maggie Hope book? I do. I remember seeing it in 08. Um, I remember, I mean, that was like, that was the couch jumping year for Tom Cruise. That yeah, was it was not a good period. Year. It was yeah. a little weird. And I have to say at that time, I was a little distracted by him and his off-screen persona. Yeah. Coming back and watching it again. I'm really glad I did because I enjoyed it a lot more. And I think his performance is solid. It is. I mean, 
Yeah, it's a Tom yeah. Cruise vehicle, but he he is very good. And then he surrounds himself with fantastic people, you know, like Kenneth Brown on. Yeah, I know. So I really, I liked it much more on the second viewing. I know that's always good to do to revisit something. Sometimes um, I know we had talked about originally and we talked on Twitter and an email (laughs) about possibly doing the last seduction. I did it with uh, Nikki Dolson back in May for like uh, women in crime movies. Uh So we were fine, but you brought up like, you know, we liked the last seduction a lot more in the nineties. And that's kind of the same idea Mm -hmm. that we had in that episode is, you know, this might've played better back then. Yeah. It, I mean, I was in my twenties when that came out and it did better and we, it was just a different era. That's all I can say. And there are certain things in the last seduction, not that I'm going to talk about that too much, but there are certain things that still work. I mean, Linda oh, Fiorentino is fantastic and yeah. such a strong character and yep. fascinating and evil, but evil in a fascinating way. Like you kind of root for her, but yeah, it just doesn't really hold up. There are a lot of things the the homophobia, the transphobia mm-hmm. that just do not work in. Yeah, today. I know. Yeah. So it's always good to see where you're at when you watch these movies at different points mm-hmm. in your life and and how times have changed. So yeah, I think uh, Valkyrie really does um, still work. And it's probably more solid because we can leave sort of the talk show appearances sometimes, right? even though you try to like, just go in and let that wash over you. Sometimes it is hard. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you want to add on this one? Oh, let's see. Mm -mm -mm. Oh, I have... I made a note. There were too many older white men and that they should have had Stanley Tucci in it. I, for some reason, I was just missing his presence. I thought he could have been Stanley Tucci. Yeah. He has, his face would have been so different and his whole energy would have been so different. It would have brought a lot to it. I don't know who I would have cast him as, but he needed to be in that movie. He does. And you saying that it's like, now I'm thinking of like the Stanley Tucci movies and I'm like, put him in with Oliver Platt or Campbell Scott and like they're in it too. Yes. Absolutely. They belong in it. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Tucci should just basically be in every movie. As far he as really should. Movie. Yeah. There's I know. I, I heard that he, his um, touring Italy show is back on CNN. <gasps> I know. I know. So I can't wait to see that. My husband yeah. and I watched it during the pandemic and we loved it, you know, because yeah. it's the only traveling we could do at that point. So I know the best way to travel uh, during that time, especially. <laughs> Yeah, well, based upon the 2014 memoir, Black Klansman, by Ron Stallworth, Spike Lee's 2018 biographical crime film stars John David Washington and Adam Driver as two Colorado Springs police officers in the 1970s who infiltrate and expose the Ku Klux Klan. Nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Spike Lee's first Oscar nod for directing, which is insane, Best Supporting Actor for Adam Driver and Adapted Screenplay by Charlie Wachtel, David Rabinowitz, Kevin Wilmot, and Spike Lee. Much like Valkyrie, I loved how this brought to the surface a piece of history that most viewers didn't know about. So what's your take on Black Klansmen? Okay, first of all, huge Spike Lee fan. I know. So I why wasn't him. he nominated before for like a million other things? I don't know. And I don't know why he didn't win. He won for best screenplay adaptation, yeah. I think, that year, but not for best director. I I don't know. I have so no weird. idea. Yeah. But um, I do love him. I loved the way he approached this new movie. I love his energy. 
I love that we start, um, you know, in the past, you know, so we're starting um, with like this, the prologue that shows the civil rights movement and shows, you know, basically how they got from the civil war to the civil rights movement and then to where we were in time, like what, 1972, 73, I think okay. with the movie. Yeah. So I loved how imaginatively he did that. And the whole William Baldwin with the glasses and just being such a racist. And yes. I, I mean, that was terrifying, but it's also such a, it's such a filmmaker's move, right. To show a film mm-hmm. being made about a film being made. Yes. Um, I, I love that. I love all of Spike Lee's sort of inside jokes, not jokes, but inside references to filmmaking and how mm-hmm. he can be very self-conscious about it, but not lose us as the audience. And um, yeah, I just love it. So then we get into the actual story, which is, you know, Ron, and he is of course black and he does go undercover and Adam Driver is like his stunt double basically. Yeah. Say One of the choices I loved that Spike Lee made was when that Ron was on the phone with David Duke, of course, the white supremacist. There's a split screen. And I thought that there's something really funny about that. So first of all, from a practical point of view, you can see both their faces and you can see both sides of the conversation. So you're not cutting back and forth. You're like watching in real time. But then the thing is from those like silly movies in the fifties, that's how the, the, the love interest would always be shown. Yeah. Like pillow talk. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was thinking of pillow talk. And I just thought that was so smart and well done and and really, really amazing. Mm-hmm. And then the thing with David Duke was so interesting because David Duke, of course, is still around and he's yeah. still in our time. And I do love the ending to Black Klansman. Um, oh, it's so hard course, hitting. Yeah. It is so hard hitting. Um, they they end with the march and Charlottesville and um, the death of Heather Heyer. Yeah. It, yes. Her death and um, exactly how this has influenced where we were then, which is yeah. actually you know, where we are now too. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that part of the movie and he does it without preaching. He does it without anything. He just, he just, he just draws all of it together so beautifully. Well, He really does. That's one thing I've always loved about Spike Lee is how he can address sometimes different eras and and comment on what is going on now. I saw that with his Vietnam movie, Defy Bloods. He did that with Defy Bloods recently, where you kind of felt because it was taking place in dual timelines, but he was then commenting on what's going on in the Trump era. I mean, he even had a character that was kind of doing that, but it doesn't feel like he's signposting too much, except at the end of this when he's, you know, purposely doing it. But I do love that. Another movie he does it really well in is 25th hour. I love that movie. And I think it's so underappreciated. Oh, I I think it's one of his best, like three, like three best films. I would say, um, I ever get to meet him. I'm going to be like, I love 25 hours so much. It is so good. But yeah, that's sort of, yeah, it's like, it's one of the best post nine 11 movies, but then it also kind of comments on, you know, have things changed or have they, you know, gotten Mm -hmm. worse in some respects. And so yeah, yeah, I I love that about Spike Lee so much. Yeah, and he's always such a good director of actors. And uh, this movie, I mean, 
it's kind of a film for acting, actually. It's like celebrating what they do because they are going undercover, which is a little bit of a performance. In this case, it's an extreme performance. And I think it's so good to see like two people play the same part, essentially, mm-hmm. and um, or build this uh fake persona uh adam driver i think is maybe the best actor of his generation he's up there like with ben foster and there's like a couple of them i think that stand head and shoulders above and uh yeah he can kind of convey a number of things john david washington looks like he's having a ball i think and i did not know he was Denzel Washington's son. Until I know, how perfect was that? I like yeah. read the, but then once you see it, you can't unsee it. But yeah. 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 He, and regardless like, of who his dad is, he was perfect. I and mean, yes. really, really perfect. Yeah. And it's so cool too, because Denzel, of course, is a huge muse of Spike Lee. So it's kind of like, you know, the next generation a little bit, mm-hmm. which I love. But yeah, I went into the movie not even putting that together myself. So I think it's really good. Um, I also like that it goes in and you think, okay, we're going to learn about the Black Student Union and the Black Panthers. And then it kind of switches. It shows what they were really worried about law enforcement and like who they should have been worried about. And I think that's an important thing as well. Yeah. That's a really important thing too. That that comes up in my book a bit. It's, um, you know, the police in LA were mostly worried about communists. Yes. Yeah. That's in the new book. Right. With communists along with the FBI and they just did not take Nazis seriously. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there were, there were certain parallels there. Like the, the police were just on the wrong enemy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That kind of reminded me of not to get too into the current events, but that reminded me of that report a few years back where the FBI was warning that, you know, too many law enforcement people had ties to some of these groups and, you know, how scary that was. And yeah, yeah. Yep. And so I think, you know, Black Klansman is pretty timely and um, yeah, it's definitely um, Spike Lee working at the top of his game again. I think, Um, you know, not that he ever went away, but I think it's just so cool that he's consistently made these great films year after year um like with the year that he made the five bloods he also made the david byrne concert movie Mm -hmm. which was like my favorite movie that year they were both in my top 10 and yeah i think he's one of our greatest filmmakers for sure you know i read um i was reading the new york times review of black klansman and the the writer the critic was basically saying how much he loved the cross cut of the birth of a nation movie, you know, from the with like the scene with Harry Belafonte giving testimony about lynching and the cross cuts were very much in the style of birth of a nation. And he thought Spike Lee did it on purpose as I wouldn't say an homage, but as a reference. Oh yeah. Then I read this article with Spike Lee and he said, he didn't consciously do that, but he did learn about that. He did see, um, you know, birth of a nation in, in film school. And they talked about the cross cutting and how it really built tension probably subconsciously, always yeah. subconsciously. It always stayed with him. And so now when I watched that part, which is of course, one of like the tensest, um, yes, most nerve wracking parts, um, it's just amazing how, what a, an amazing artist he is. I mean, he uses the conscious, he uses the unconscious, he's, you know, 
Yeah. Everything you learn in film school is still there, even if he doesn't actively remember it. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of my friends, when she went to Vassar, he was like a guest professor, guest lecturer. And she just said that, you know, when he would talk about movies, he would just be talking and getting more and more excited and then bringing up other films and other films and just uh, what a film scholar he is at the Academy Museum. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Like it's not sponsored by the Academy Museum, this podcast, but go to the Academy Museum. There is a Spike Lee room and in it are um, just a million posters that he has like these staggeringly beautiful, like original Italian posters and French posters of movies from, you know, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and just all the films that have influenced him and you know you can see that like maybe everything you sort of absorb um can come out yeah absolutely so i i that's just something i when i learned it this chill went down my spine because i just thought it was so perfect and it kind of works with what i think spike lee's process might be you know yeah i know i also one thing i liked about this movie is it's sort of focused on sometimes the dangers of men being together and um, trying to outdo one another, like maybe, you know, if they're alone, they might not act on these ideas, but they kind of like inspire or one up each other. Um, you see that when he, when Adam Driver's character is infiltrating and he kind of becomes close with a guy who sort of seems to idolize him or there's yeah. like some allusion to maybe is it romantic a little bit or he has kind of a man crush, if you will, almost on the Adam Driver character and just how they kind of egg each other on. And you start wondering, you know, is it what is that about that dynamic? And it sort of is something that Spike Lee investigates in a few films. And I thought that mm -hmm. that, that was really good in this, too. I did kind of wish he would have done more with the female characters, though. That would I be, agree with I you. I mean, the movie's pretty perfect. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I know. I, I especially wanted to know. Well, there are a couple of female characters, but I thought it was interesting. You know, the the racist wife was a fascinating character, but um, we have a a young female black activist, and mm -hmm. I think having a few more scenes from her point of view, more than just um, like at the beginning, John David Washington's character gets involved with her and doesn't tell her he's a police officer. And, you know, you wanted to see what she was doing with her days a little bit. Absolutely. So I and I sort that. of would like to have known what she would have thought about all of this. Yes. Like, yeah. And she, they do get back together, but it's like, what did you think? Like, were yeah. you convinced or not convinced? Do you, are you yeah, okay with him being peace now? Like, how do you feel? So I don't know. That's just my one little, like, I always think like, well, what are the women doing? And I, yeah. I really want her. I did think the sort of white supremacist wife was pretty brilliantly drawn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, especially the way she just needed so much approval from those men and yep. the way that, um, she wanted to you know, prove she herself. Really wanted to be, yeah. yeah, she really wanted to be a part of things, but they were definitely like keeping her down. There was like the racism and then there was the sexism. And she, yes. she was so racist. She didn't even care about the sexism, which was yeah. interesting. It was a very interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. That compartmentalizing all the prejudice, basically. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. These are um, fascinating characters uh, for sure. Yeah. Had you read the book at all? 
I read the book after seeing the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I did love the book. It's very different, of course. Okay. Because, I was curious. You know, it's it's very, you know, it's pretty factual. It's like mm-hmm. how he how this all happened. You know, we don't have the Spike Lee bookends or the <laughs> imaginative scenes. Um, I mean, it's really good. I I like dry, so a little bit drier, kind of like a, a police little bit drier. Yeah. Um, and oh, here's an interesting difference: the Adam Driver character was not Jewish in the book. They were all white. Ah, okay. But I thought it was interesting that uh, Spike Lee deliberately made Adam Driver's character Jewish because, in a way, he was passing. Like this whole movie is about passing. It really is. Can you pass? And like, what do you look like? And what do you sound like? And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was another form of passing that I thought was really interesting. Like he was passing for white his whole life. He was Mm -hmm. passing for white, but far more aware of being Jewish when he was around white supremacists. Yeah, Um, I just thought that was a nice touch, really. Yeah. Passing for a typical wasp when, Mm -hmm. yeah, when he was uh, Jewish, I thought that was a good, yeah, a good decision. Wow. But that was that was Spike Lee's decision. That was yeah. not part of the real life story. Yeah. Interesting. So you said that this was an influence on mother daughter trader spy. I don't know an influence, but I do I, I wanted to take that sort of undercover idea. Yeah. Energy and that sort of undercover idea and the idea of passing and the mm-hmm. idea of acting and the idea of spycraft and work that all in together. Cause he just does it so brilliantly. Yeah. Um, obviously they're very different. Oh, of course. But, but yeah, but I, I, I just, cool. I really, I really love that film so much. So yeah, the idea of like these two women, a mother and daughter going undercover, it, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of resonance for me with black Klansmen. So yeah, for sure. Well, I know those are just the films we had time for today, but since you have such a keen interest and knowledge of spies and history and fiction, I'd love to know which additional spy movies or books or anything you would recommend listeners seek out. Oh my goodness. Well, I would definitely encourage listeners to seek out Hitler in Los Angeles. It's the nonfiction. Sounds like it. Yeah. Inspired mother, daughter, trader, spy. It's uh, oh, Stephen J. Ross and he is brilliant. And it's not, it's not a dusty book at all. It reads like a thriller. You're basically cool. taking the story of the, the spy master who basically was not taken seriously by the FBI and not taken seriously by the police about the Nazi threat in Los Angeles and just how he became aware of Hitler, how he got his little band of spies together, how they worked together over the years because they were together for more than 15 years. And then, you know, what happened after Pearl Harbor when they started getting taken seriously finally. So I would definitely recommend that book. And um, wow, in terms of movies, well, you can never go wrong with a Hitchcock film. Yeah. It was so hard to pick just one. I think I North by Northwest because it was sort of fun and light. Yeah, we needed that in contrast with the others. Absolutely. I don't know. Oh, gosh, there's so many thrillers that I just love. I I love the whole genre. And I think, you know, with film, especially like those jumps that you get are incredible. And like the twists. It's just so Yeah, I know when we were thinking of ideas, one, unfortunately, the movie is kind of harder to find, but you suggested Enigma, and that's a really good one. 
Oh yeah. Enigma is fascinating. And I don't think it's funny because there's so much interest in World War II now, but nobody really talks about Enigma. Yeah. And that's the whole Bletchley Park story. And then, you know, we follow this like young female secretary there and how she sort of figures out this undercover situation that's going on. But yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm sorry it's not easier for people to watch because it's a great movie. Hopefully we'll inspire some streamers and they'll put it on or something. Yes, but yeah. Please. Yeah. That was Kate Winslet, right? It's Kate been a while Winslet. for me. Yeah. yeah. She was, and she was great. She was so frumpy and, you know, then, then there was Saffron Burroughs as the really sexy. Yeah. Oh, she's great. Person. too. She was fantastic. Um, yeah. So much good stuff. And then the, the reveal, like, do you remember like the ending on the train and then the reveal? I of- don't. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Well, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody just in case people do start streaming it or have it yeah. done or something, but it's just such a great ending. It's a really well done, well thought out, good, good ending. Excellent. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was such a pleasure and an honor. And I'm so glad to meet you. I'm so glad to meet you too. Please say hi to your mom for me. Oh, I will. She's going to be so excited listening to this episode. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.